0: everyone. We are six weeks away from our celebratory 200th episode, and we want to hear from all of you. Please send us in a audio recording of a comment or a question to our email address, thetwocitiespodcast at gmail.com, and we'll enter you into a drawing for book giveaways. We have five different book giveaway bundles from different publishers from Baylor University Press, Airdman's, Zondervan, and Baker. So do send us in a recording by November 1st, and we'll enter you into a drawing for one of those amazing book bundle giveaways. All right, and here's the episode. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 194. In this episode, we're talking about Christ the Center with Dr. Tomas Bocadol. Dr. Tomas Bokadal is lecturer in New Testament at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and associate professor in New Testament at NLA University College in Bergen, Norway. And he's the author of the book that we're excited to discuss in this episode, Christ the Center, How the Rule of Faith, the Nomina Sacra, and Numerical Patterns Shape the Canon, published by Lexan Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Reverend Dr. Josh Carroll and me, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So in this episode, we have a wonderful chat with Dr. Bocadal about his new book. Dr. Bocadal has done a lot of work in canon formation. And in this episode, he pulls together several threads to kind of demonstrate how Christology is really at the core of the formation of the canon, and he points to some really fascinating evidence. And we end up talking about a lot of really interesting and fascinating things, uh, a lot of numbers and a lot of interesting uh, statistics and, and different things. Josh, what were some of the takeaways that you had from our conversation with Dr. Bokadol?
1: I really appreciated Dr. Bokadal's understanding of how the Namna Sakura and the different textual criticism things and numeral numbers and all these kind of different things can it can become really intricate and adding and checking all these numbers and finding things. But he spoke to the intentionality behind the formulation of canon and, and just even the understanding of Old Testament, New Testament, how biblical theology was in view uh, when people were pulling these things together. And uh, and how the Namana Sacra especially highlighted important structural aspects of the rule of faith that we sometimes forget. Um, even in New Testament scholarship.
0: If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. You can also follow us on X, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Tomas Bocodal. Well, dr bokadal thanks so much for joining us
2: thank you very much
0: for inviting me so we're really excited to talk about your new book with lexham press christ the center how the rule of faith the nomina sacra and numerical patterns shape the canon so there's a lot to unpack there and we'll circle back uh to the various uh topics and threads that run throughout the book but As a kind of overview to get the lay of the land of what you're trying to do in this book and what you're
2: arguing, could you tell us what the book's thesis is? Well, Christ is the center. That's basically the thesis. And uh, Christ appears at the center in um, um, the study of, of the scriptures in various ways. When you study the canon formation process. Um, All the New Testament division, for instance, Christ and the New Covenant is important there. When you study the rule of faith, uh, Christ is the center of the expanded second article of faith. And uh, of course, Christ is related to the first and and third article as well. The third article about the Holy Spirit or the spirit of prophecy teaches about God and uh, testifies uh, uh, about uh, Christ also when i focus on these um special demarcations in the greek biblical manuscripts the sacred words um the nomina sacra they are called in in, in latin uh, and scholars use that term um the most important words there are god christ and spirit or god father lord jesus christ son and spirit um Even cross and crucify may be brought in there, and that makes up a little creed, doesn't it? So the most important words that are demarcated on basically every page in a Greek New Testament are the same words that are um, uh, making up the structure of the rule of faith, which is a very early pattern, textual pattern and um, theological pattern, devotional pattern that is traceable back to the first century i've done that in another article Uh, the rule of faith tracing its origins Um, and here i use um, some of that um, uh, research in in this book as well Uh, numerical patterns as well i thought i saw since um, the 22 books of the hebrew bible connects to the 22 books of the hebrew alphabet which is a completeness uh, number structure as you have in alphabetical Psalms, for instance, Psalm 119 and in in other parts of the Hebrew Bible uh, the number 27 may be a variant of that. Uh, Jerome says because the Hebrew alphabet has um, three no, has five end letter forms um uh, that are written differently if they are placed at the end of a word. So the number 27 may also be meant by by these early, uh, New Testament or uh, early church fathers, um, um, and even those who arranged the Jewish Bible as a as a number indicating how many books there were in the Jewish Bible. Uh, Jerome says that some Jews thought there were twenty four or twenty seven. Many counted the Hebrew scriptures to at at twenty two. When it comes to the New Testament, in the Syrian Peshitta, they wanted twenty two books, and um, even Jean, John Chrysostom's canon. Probably was uh, contained twenty two books, and Eusebius' undisputed books are twenty two. Uh, so they may have wanted to keep to this fullness structure. So that it's a way of indicating fullness. I think to use twenty seven, and even the uh, the, the, the number twenty two, but also uh, twenty seven. Then maybe such a, as Athanasius has it, maybe an alphabetical um, indicator um, indicating fullness. And we, of course, in the book of Revelation, even God is referred to as Alpha and Omega, first and last letter of the alphabet twice, or three times, actually, God twice and Jesus Christ uh, once. Um, so that's, um, that's yeah, I could say that about numerical structures, even codicologically. when you look at, for instance, Codex Sinaiticus, the four Gospels during the pandemic pandemic, um, I was a little bit bored, I must confess, so I uh, attended to a a project uh, uh, of counting the number of columns in uh, the Gospels of Codex Sinaiticus, actually, well it took me 20 minutes, it wasn't so bad, Uh, but they are actually 484, which is 22 squared, that may be a coincidence, But it may perhaps not be a coincidence. And if it's not a coincidence, they may have um, intentionally intended the four gospel uh, collection or codex um, or four gospel portion of Codex Sinaiticus to be a subcanonical unit indicating fullness and even holiness. Because when you have squares in a Jewish setting and Jewish Christian settings, like temple measures, when they are squared, that means and um, s- especially holy. So I think some of these figures are a bit, little bit exciting. For the rest of the New Testament, there, there's another interesting square involved um, 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 making the rest of the New Testament uh, delimitated as well, as I indicated in the book. I won't go too much into numbers, I think, for now, but I think the codicolog- codicological data and also the canonical Data at the macro-canonical level are easy to buy. Um, it's easy to kind of agree, well, probably there were some, Oh, well, we know for sure, by the way, regarding the number 22 and the Hebrew canonical delimitation at 22, because the church fathers and, and Jewish uh, writers, they tell us that they connected number of books to the alphabet, actually. But then you can suspect for some other figures that they may have Um, proceeded uh, in the same way regarding those and regarding nomina sacra they actually turn out to occur um, by such alphabetical figures to very high extent so i kind of think when you see the name or the the word um stauros cross occurring 27 times in the new testament perhaps and then i you have several others of these nomina sacra occurring with them multiples of alphabetical numerals Um, Jesus Christ for instance Um, that's I think very interesting yeah so that's a little bit about the overall argument and they all actually can be connected Um, rule of faith nomina sacra as I indicated and the canonical process it it was all basically weaved that's the theory that the canonical subunits and um, the different portions of the canon was weaved together from within, uh, so more internally, um, intrinsically um, brought together, or as much intrinsically brought together, weaved together as by extrinsic um, uh, reasons um, and, and you know whatever that could be. But it's a combination, I think, but but not least this kind of. A composition uh, aspect of um, of the canon can be can be of the christian canon can be um, detected i think through the study of the things i have studied uh, this kind of triune pattern the christological pattern through nomina sacra and how they may be connected to some numerical patterns and um, alphabetical structures and so forth
0: so this is uh Really fascinating, and there's a lot to uh, dig into and unpack there. I guess my um, initial thought is, since you know you've done a lot of work on the canon uh, formation. Uh, thinking about as you said there are a handful of people who explicitly refer to 22 books um you know like you say connecting it to the 22 books of the uh, Hebrew Bible if you um, if you if you take uh, the book of the 12 right to be a single book like that that sort of thing but given your your work on how like you know all of these kind of elements are sort of showing how these subunits, existed together and how they were kind of woven together from the inside out, so to speak. Um, those who were holding to 22 New Testament books, would you say that they didn't recognize these patterns or like, how how would you see it? Um, like, how would you articulate their um, not going to 27? You know, what were they, were they leaving, like, what were they leaving out and how does that relate to, you know, some of, some of the work that, that you've
2: done? Yeah, twenty-two is an alphabetical fullness number. If if you viewed like that, they were still aiming towards um, fullness. Uh, even when it comes to uh, Old Testament apocrypha, Augustine included some of those in his uh, Catholic uh, Old Testament, and that is the same as the Roman Catholic Church still has it um, today. And um, actually, the books number of books in in his canon um, are forty-four Which is, I think, two times 22. So the reason I kind of um, thought that 44 is two times 22 is when I came across a scholar who said that, well, look at Augustine, he didn't follow this pattern. Then I thought, well, but isn't 44 two times 22? And by the way, when they divided um, later on, well, prophets become becomes 12 books and one and two Samuel become two books. And it's a little bit arbitrary if you should devise certain books. But if you do it the way that it has come down to us, you get 66 books. And I thought that that is um, three times 22, isn't it? Uh, so there may be this fullness kind of inclination, hidden or implicit in many of these um, attempt at getting at fullness. Well, the canonical the canon formation is a process, I believe, together with in good company with Brever Childs and um, many others, especially Brever Childs, who has emphasized the importance of the process. Uh, so there may be dialogues on the way, but um, as they work with you know, sub-canonical units, they always try to be consistent when producing each of those. And of course, the Four Gospel, Um, collection is is a very early one and the Pauline letters uh, an early one Uh, there were some disputes regarding Hebrews because and it's it's included in the Pauline letter corpus in the manuscript tradition Mm -hmm. always included in the Pauline letter corpus it seems Hebrews but there was some dispute probably because Paul they weren't sure that Paul had written it himself but it should be grouped together with the Pauline letters uh, in the manuscript tradition it is, and um, in our modern Bibles it is normally as well. Uh, the Catholic letters were a little that subcanonical unit um was formed a little later and um, but they worked in the same way towards producing um, a complete structure there there as well. W- one John and one Peter were a very early letter circulating at a very early date uh, as early as the Pauline letters it seems um uh, some other letters weren't testified to until a bit later i think there was like a bible society in the early church that that worked with that they didn't fix a complete uh, greek new testament in five years or even three years or perhaps even 30 years it took them somewhat they worked with these things for some decades and um in dialogue also with, with Judaism who, who was forming its um, more delimited um, canon perhaps during this time that they, they had a limited corpus and but they were still dealing with the Greek text and they changed from the Septuagint to other um, Greek renderings of the text, Simakos uh, and Theodosian uh, there were various such um, uh, Jewish Greek uh, Bibles and, and the Christians had their Septuagint and and the Christians became serious with that, with the production of the Septuagint from the mid second century onwards. So there was a process, I would say, and and um, the reason why you have some some differences regarding um, marginal writings or smaller writings uh, in in the New Testament is probably can be accountable for due to this process. Of course, the Book of Revelation is a special case, but it was never disputed, it seems, until about the year 200
1: one of the things about this podcast is it's this intersection of like they can get these really heady topics we can get into philosophy practical things like that um how could you tell us what the intentionality of forming forming a canon or forming things along a numerical pattern especially when it's structured along with the namna sakra and and the understanding that like People don't even understand that or think that Jesus was held in the high reverence that he was until way later. Uh, so our formation for our Trinitarian theology and all that kind of different stuff. Can you bring that to us in a more in a, in not a more in a uh, the intentionality speaks to what they're trying to communicate, even even abbreviating the names specifically to highlight them rather than to titrate their effect in the entire script manuscript?
2: I, I did, when it comes to Christology and Christological development, um, that is interesting. Uh, you are all very well aware, I think, of um, the recent developments in the last few decades with uh, Martin Hengel and uh, Balkam cared Hurtado, many others, Cole, and many others following, actually. Um, and um, Martin Hengel, he, sa- he, he says regarding Christology that in the beginning there was not uh, just um uh, rapid development it was an explosion (laughs) and it happened within five years after what they believed was the resurrection the cross and the resurrection and most of it within the first six months and Hurtado he he went along with Hengel two two essays of Martin Hengel's were very important for Martin for Larry Hurtado and his uh, development and uh, in his um, uh, authoring of books like is it one God, One Lord, and Lord Jesus Christ uh, and other writings. Um, Richard Borkham and, and Caird, of course, both made statements like the, the earliest Christology is already the highest. You're probably familiar with, with claims like that, which I think makes sense um, um, Look, looking at the evidence. And critics like Bart Ehrman and others who've been engaged in this discussion, Michael Byrd and others, of course, have been as well. Um, they have had to to focus on the first 20 years rather than the first 300 years when it comes to development of Christology. So the whole discussion regarding these things have have narrowed down uh, now uh, involving basically only 20 or 30 years or something like that. Uh, So I think that's a general uh, pattern that we see. Um, uh, When it comes to the New Testament, uh, I don't think you need to worry so much about low or high Christology when it comes to the Gospels, because in the Pauline letters already and before they were authored, you would have such a Christological high Christology present, or whatever you want to call, call it—divine uh, Christology, or or something like that. Yeah, even even Paul seems to presuppose that, and even even at his conversion, Hurtado argues in one article that I actually haven't read, <laughs> but he 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 argues that. Um, Uh, Paul had already uh, adopted such a a highest Christology by the time of his conversion between 32 and 34 or something like that. So it's an early pattern. If you read, uh, well, Mark's gospel already would would assume such like curious, the curious concept is applied to Jesus already at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And Jesus is forgiving sins. He's doing the things that only God can do, uh, which Richard Borkham, of course, has pointed out in an encyclopedia article and the dictionary of jesus and the gospels i think no Uh, yeah yeah i think it is Um, yeah Uh, if you go to matthew's gospel numerological patterns uh, do they come in i think a bit there in the genealogy Uh, so david the hebrew word david Dalit Wav Dalet. it makes up because Hebrew letters and Greek letters they both indicate numbers as well. So Dalit equals four, Wav equals six, and Dalit equals four. So four plus six plus four is fourteen. So the Davidic name has the numerical value fourteen, and many scholars think that Matthew is using this kind of gematria. Fourteen times three um, generations. Here. So in Matthew one seventeen, you have altogether 42 generations. And I think Jesus has the Christ towards the end, he who is the Christ, and that makes up number 42, actually. So so Jesus has two numbers, actually, in that genealogy, I think. Um, however, it's also interesting to note with um, um, Alison Davis that um, David David comes in the 14th position in the genealogy. So according to, to, to them, it's no doubt there's a Jewish gematria happening here in Matthew. Um, if you go to the book of Revelation, the number seven is very important. It occurs over 50 times in that book. Um, and when the Catholic epistles are formed, it's seven letters When the Pauline corpus is formed, including Hebrews, one later church father, uh, Amphiloch of Iconium, he says that, well, 14 books is two times seven, <laughs> and they uh, they connect to a very early tradition regarding how the Pauline corpus came to be, namely, that Paul wrote to seven churches. It is such an early tradition so that Harry Gamble uh, suggests that the author of the book of Re- Revelation was even dependent on that tradition when uh, writing to seven uh, congregations there in, in Revelation 2 and 3 is it, isn't it it um, and so Paul writing to seven churches uh, that tradition was very important it seems to the early church and then you double that number you get 14 so they work with some numbers here um, uh, so even um, yeah Paul 1 and 2 Corinthians still make one congregation and 1 and 2 Thessalonians still make one congregation and uh, Letters to individuals does not mess with that because it's still seven congregations, seven churches. And when you add Hebrews, it still doesn't mess with that, I think, because the letter to Hebrews is a letter to to a group of people. It's not a a church in the same sense as the other letters. So so Hebrews could be brought in without messing with that tradition. It's just hypothetical kind of thoughts um, um, I'm having in that regard. But I think there's something to that. And and then saying that it's two times seven, it makes then 14. Um, I think that's a little bit, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. Also, the four Gospels, Irenaeus says, they must be four. And he has this kind of naturalistic, almost as a, like uh, he's appealing to nature, north, south, west, and east, um, to say that um, just as there are four directions and four covenants, he says. And the last one is Christ, the covenant of Christ. Uh, Therefore, the Gospels need to be four. So he directly connects that to the new covenant, even, which is interesting. And then we have, of course, the New Testament is called the new covenant or Kainadi, I think, uh, uh, referring back to Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, I think. So it means that um, when that title is is, um, adopted, um, around 170 or towards the end of the second century, um, there's uh, well it connects to seven places in the New Testament where this title actually or these um cons- this, th- these terms occur the new covenant Jesus uses this once in relation to the Last Supper and Paul as well and then you have in Hebrews, uh, these these um this concept of a new covenant and of course the the most important place the only the only place in the, in in the christian bible and jewish bible where you have it in the hebrew is in jeremiah 31 um it's it's kind of an interesting i think it's very under-evaluated among uh, new testament scholars uh, these titles actually uh, especially since they're very early and um, one thing i've noted actually um uh, is that um so, so I wrote an article quite recently called Why is the New Testament called New Testament? So It's published in a volume uh, with the greater called Scripture and Theology that appeared um, now in August. Uh, I did note that New Testament or "Kainē diatheke in the Greek is the only Greek uh, phrase that is left out of, um, or perhaps others as well, but from Nestle Alland. 28th edition and the Tyndall House Greek New Testament. Um, so I wonder why do they they have it in Latin, Novum Testamentum, hmm. and the Tyndall House Greek New Testament has um the Greek New Testament in English, but everything else is actually in Greek. Have you noticed that? Oh, everything is <laughs> because it's a Greek New Testament, or it's a Novum Testamentum, but it's not a theke hmm. in the Greek. So so why is that? My suspicion is that the editors of these modern Uh, um, Greek New Testament editions, they think that this is early church theology. This came about towards the late 2nd century, and therefore we should not include it. Um, However, other late titles are perhaps included, depending on what kind of dating you're working with for, let's say, to Peter, and perhaps that's a later title as compared to the New Testament. Novum Testamentum or kinder diatheke. I think that's an interesting discussion to have, and also we have the gospel titles, and we have the titles for one and two Corinthians. Perhaps the the title two Corinthians, two Thessalonians; those titles are appear at the same time as Novum Testamentum, and I kind of think that the title New Covenant is important for for the editors who who gave us this collection of writings because it sets an agenda for reading it in a way that the early we call often proof from prophecy or old relating to new. And of course, that's very sensitive when it comes to many discussions. Um, perhaps we shouldn't have it too new, whereas Donald Hegner says and focuses on uh, everything that is new, the newness of of. Uh, uh, the writings and what came with, with Christ. He has a, a book on that theme and others have focused on that as well. But that's a minority kind of focus, isn't it? Because we shouldn't these days in New Testament studies uh, talk too much about what is new.
1: Yeah, the biblical yeah. theology aspect of it too right, is what you're saying. Like it's the connection between old and new that makes the coherence. And so the numbers and the different things you're bringing up and the Namana Sakura kind of feed into that I, I know you get that into that later in your book um yeah i think that's really it's really interesting how that supports a, a biblical theology and an understanding of not everything new has to be so new that it throws out the old
2: no no and, and it, it, of course newness doesn't throw out the old uh, to the contrary it presupposes the old however in jeremiah 31 it's not when they say that old testament is is a term we shouldn't use. Um uh, it's anachronistic. Uh the new testament is, is more okay. However, in Jeremiah, it's the new covenant that is mentioned, not the old covenant. So once the new the new covenant idea is there first, and because of that idea and that notion, that concept, that term, that phrase, the old testament term must have come into being. And in Hebrews, you have, of course, the 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 first and the second or the primary and the secondary te- Testament, they they use different terminology there in Hebrews. Uh, I think that is a, a bit interesting as well. Of course, uh, William Vrede, when he describes the historical critical program, he says that, um, and, and relating to biblical theology and new Testament theology, he says, new Testament theology is wrong in both its terms. We shouldn't deal. We shouldn't occupy ourselves with, Theology at all; it should be the you know history of religions and a different approach than a dogmatic or theological approach. And New Testament, we shouldn't work with that title either because we should have a wider conception of um, the canon. And Boltzmann and Helmut Custer and many others, they have of course applied that uh, more in full. Uh, and we do uh, the third quest of this Oracle Jesus does as well, very much. So, um, so there we shouldn't delimit ourselves to the New Testament canon, we shouldn't actually have to we should just kind of get rid of the New Testament notion, but we're still in New Testament, aren't we? I mean you're a New Testament scholars, both of you, <laughs> and I like to be as well. So we have a problem there, I think curious to to dive
0: in more to the nomina sacra part of your book so we've talked a bit about the numerical patterns and and you did kind of set up the nomina sacra earlier talking about you know what they are these uh, sacred words can you tell us can you tell us more about about what they are um you mentioned you mentioned um you know Jesus god the cross you know uh spirit these different words that are kind of like abbreviated but uh, how do they contribute to canon formation so people who have you know study textual criticism or have gotten into like the manuscripts in their study of greek are familiar with with these kind of um, forms with the over bar and the you know abbreviations and stuff but how how do they figure into canon formation in your, in, in terms of your argument
1: and a, and especially to jump on with that john like there's the popular level stuff like the bart ehrman type things that a lot of people are reading because they're not going and reading Metzger's textual criticism. They're not stepping into the deeper stuff that you're reading. So even speaking into that, like how John is talking about Namana Sacra, how you are, how that informs just kind of our everyday understanding of canonicity and and faith.
2: Yeah. Uh, the Nomina Sacra, they have a focus on Jesus as Messiah, Jesus Christ. Um, the earliest four nomina sacra demarcations uh, and they are they are highlighted or demarcated by normally by taking the first letter of the greek word and the last letter of the greek word so jesus starts with the iota and ends with the sigma so you have iota and a sigma and a supralinear line or an overbar so it's it's like uh, underlined or overlined actually in the greek text so you see these um these words uh, when you read, it's like it becomes more meditative, you could say uh, because you have Jesus and you have Christ and God and Lord and Spirit and often Father and Son and even human being because Jesus was both God and human. Uh, so when you read the text, it is immediately these sacred words that that are that may struck the reader and help the reader to to read in the way, Uh, Editors and authors, Luke and John, I think, already used Nomina Sacra when they wrote, I think, Paul did as well. Um, And uh, so I I argue for that elsewhere. But but Luke and John emphasize a late stage of the Nomina Sacra development when Pneuma, spirit, is introduced. And they have such an emphasis on Pneuma, spirit, Luke and John, and Acts. So I I cannot think that they weren't aware of these um, divine uh, demarcations. Paul, when he writes One Corinthians eight, it's like a Christolo- christological schema there, with emphasis on on um, God the Father and One God the Father, One Lord Jesus Christ, and both our Creator. Jesus is part of creation, and and we exist in Jesus. We exist in God. So the parallelism there in One Corinthians eight, and this and uh, these nomina sacra demarcations in One Corinthians eight six are consistently. Uh, highlighted throughout the manuscript tradition uh, i think there are like some 50 manuscripts that we we noted uh, i noted together with uh, one scholar should i uh swanson <laughs> so, uh, who, who helped me in that regard um the earliest nomen sacrum that was indicated is probably the name of jesus uh, that's um ch roberts and leo hurtado's hypothesis it could have been the case that God and Lord were indicated in parallel to Jewish uh, demarcation of the divine name, the Tetragrammaton, Yahweh. And the way of doing this in the Greek was to demarcate Theos and Kyrios, God and Lord. And the Christians did it like this, but they always included Jesus and Christ graphically and highlighted in the same way as the divine name. And Pneuma is included there as well. So in our earliest manuscripts, Pneuma is included. Papyrus 46 from around um, 200, and um, Papyrus 45, uh, 66, and you have 75. You have these early and even earlier papyri. Old Testament Greek uh, text as well uh, include uh, the nomina sacra that are, are used there for those words in, in the Greek Old Testament. So you see immediately a difference uh, between... a, a christian old testament manuscript in the greek and a jewish um, scriptural passage in the greek you can see if it's christian or jewish because the christians demarcated there some sacred words and they also used the codex form which also set christian scripture apart from the jewish scriptures and they soon came to use a different textual form because the, the synagogue didn't want to Be associated with the Septuagint very soon, and that happened in the second century. So, various features here set uh, and characteristics set Christian scripture apart from um, even Greek uh, uh, Jewish uh, scriptures that used in the synagogue context. Perhaps the earliest form of a nomen sacrum was um, an abbreviation of the name Jesus and uh, they may have used yota eta the first two letters with an overbar by doing that so when jesus uh, or in in, the, in john's gospel it is said that all these signs were written down so that you may come to believe that jesus is the christ the son of god actually that programmatic declaration there is the same that mark does at the beginning of his gospel so at the end of john and the beginning of the first gospel or the beginning of mark's gospel you have um, you have Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and Martin Hengel, he would say about the end of John's Gospel, that's a programmatic declaration that could go for, or um, a reason for writing down uh, all gospels to to ha- make people or to try to to make people believe these things. And if you believe these things, you may have life in His name. There may be a gematria involved there, as you, you probably know, uh, because chai, life in the Hebrew, chet uh, and yod they have the numerical value eight plus ten. Yod is ten, and chet is eight, so it makes eighteen. So it's a very popular symbol that people wear around their neck, even a chai symbol, just like Christians may use a cross around their necks, um, to have life in his name. But the Nomen sacrament for Jesus, when it's written as an abbreviation like that, has Yota plus eta, and Yota is 10 in the Greek, and eta is 8. It makes 18 as well. So the papyrologist C.H. Uh, Roberts and also Larry Hurtado suggested that this is a Jewish uh, numerical play, a gematria, to have life in his name, Chai in Jesus' name, Yota eta, Jesus, the Nomen sacrament of Jesus. When you then go to the letter of Barnabas which is written between 70 and 135 you find that in Genesis 14 14 that's an interesting verse isn't it 14 14 uh, thinking that divi- division into Jewish verses happened had happened already by the time of the Mishnah so there were, was awareness perhaps anyway it's in isn't isn't it in Genesis fourteen fourteen, I think the three hundred and eighteen servants of Abraham. Perhaps we should check that. Am I right now? Is that genesis fourteen fourteen? <laughs> Could we check that? So I don't say anything uh, wrong uh, unnecessarily? three hundred and eighteen. it is all oh, eighteen is written here with they use letter Greek letters here in some old Christian Old Testament manuscripts. So we have proof of that because we have, we can see here what the letter of Barnabas is referring to, such Old Testament Christian manuscripts, where, where they write 318 as the letter tau. It's like a T, and it looks like a cross. And then Yota eta with a numerical value of 18. So 318 is written like the T-shape and the Nomen sacrament abbreviation for Jesus. And then Barnabas, he he has to say, well, you know, these three hundred and eighteen servants, they—it's a symbol for, uh, it's a mysterious symbol, and I share this mystery with you now, uh, in you know, symbolizing, uh, representing Jesus and His cross. Um, that's interesting. Church historians, up till the time of the nineteenth century, they all knew that the 318 bishops who gathered at Nicaea, they knew about this old tradition. It represented Jesus and his cross. So it's a way of summarizing what Christian faith is about. It's like the cross symbol even, or the acronym, Ictus, Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior, or the staurogram, the, the Christogram or something like that. But the nomina sacra are a way well, all these are like nomina sacra, uh, as as well. I think some some, some of these oh, these oh, I see. Oh, you yeah, have you have one of those wonderful symbols on your arm here, George. Fantastic, a uh, uh, cross symbol. Fantastic. Um, so uh, there may not even have been three hundred and eighteen bishops at Nicaea, but this number was so important, so they emphasized that number uh, for for the gathering in three twenty five. We have an anniversary, by the way in two years and 2025 nicaea anniversary so that's um anyway so nomina sacra involved here and the the reason i came across just counting words which i did was i thought oh the letter of barnabas is occupied by some numerical structures here perhaps the name of jesus occurs uh, you know like 18 times in the epistle of barnabas and i started counting Well, not quite, but almost, possibly, but probably not. It was 21. And I thought three of those or four of those um, uh, Jesus uh, uh, appearances may be referring to Joshua instead of Jesus. Well, it may probably be, it's probably three instead of four. So it doesn't work exactly. But when I look at the number of occurrences of spirit in, in Barnabas, it was the same number. Occurrences as Jesus, Jesus. And I thought, hmm, perhaps there's something to this. So I went into the New Testament and pre- to John's Gospel and some other writings. And that's the way it started for me with, uh, um, yeah, I needed to find something new on Nomena And I think I did. But it's still it's a hypothesis, still.
0: Yeah, I mean it seems like there are some really clear anchors like you're pointing to the Barnabas passage like the 318 there's some really clear anchors so that it's 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 got uh there's some some rationale and you can you can kind of see how these um are are being utilized in that way. The gematria example in John uh that you know by believing in him you have life in his name. Um so, are, so, so so should we assume then that the author uh, was using the nomen sacra and 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 like you know so like in, in the autograph it would draw attention to the gematria right i mean cuz otherwise that that could get lost or at least like at least, uh, it, it it makes me wonder if if the Nomina sacra starts with the New Testament authors. If if this is if this is the case of what you're saying, uh, if that if that link that you know um, Hurtado has has argued for, if that's true, does the nomen sacra start with
2: the New Testament authors themselves? I I think it does, and I think if if you use the kind of uh, or apply the kind of suspicion, I'm applying. Regarding some numerical patterns, um, just looking at Romans um, and some other Pauline letters, and I do this in my book, I have, have plenty of, of indications that um, Romans and 1 Corinthians and other Pauline letters are following some, um, 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 actually pointing towards God with by the use of Nomen of Sacra, but it's done in two ways. So it's visible through a, a Nomen Sacrum indication, and uh, it's uh, and under the surface. It seems that they are also having a, a, a numerical uh, resonance or application as well. So even if you don't see a nome sacrum, uh, uh, Jesus or Jesus Christ may be counted, like in the Prax Apostolos or Acts and Catholic Epistles together, which makes up a canonical unit. In in the manuscript tradition, you have forty four occurrences of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christos, two times twenty two, and in the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, you have eighty-eight occurrences, four times twenty-two of Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ, and um, well, Nestle Aland for the full New Testament has a, a slightly different figure than the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, but even there you have a hundred and thirty-five, which is five times twenty-seven. So uh, it's it's that's yeah it's yeah one example, but also. Jesus Christos. It's the most important of the nomina sacra in terms of its implications for the for icons and the mosaics and the uh, artistic uh, presentations of Jesus. Because you usually have icons with and p- p- portrayals of Jesus, the Pantocrator, um, um, the all uh, all powerful ruler, with the nomen sacrum Jesus to the left and Christos to Jesus Christ uh, surrounding the 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 image. Uh, Even when you go to the New Testament, you were asking previously, Joss, regarding uh, division into canonical subunits, how nomina sacra may have an impact there. Um, Galatians start in verse one has Jesus Christos, Jesus Christ in the first verse and in the last verse. To me, that may be a potential inclusio structure, a ring composition structure. The same for 2 Peter I think in Ephesians, if I don't remember correctly, um, you have Jesus Christ in the first verse and in the last verse, in just beginning and end. And for the whole Pauline corpus, you have in Romans, Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus in, in Nestle All. It depends on what, what what text variant you follow. Jesus Christ is Christ Jesus. But in the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, it's Jesus Christ in verse 1, 1 Romans. And the last letter of the Pauline corpus in, um, in some ancient manuscripts and even in our bibles if we remove hebrews to proper place so you would have uh, jesus christ as in the last verse also the pauline corpus the same goes now for so it kind of indicates Well, you may think uh, jesus christ is not an important it's not really significant then i would counter if someone says that well you, we don't note we don't note inclusives like that So, I don't normally see people note that potential inclusio. Jesus Christ is, that's so common, it's not, we cannot count that as a proper inclusio. I think we can, because Jesus is the Messiah. That's central, isn't it? Well, actually, that's the title of my book. (laughs) (laughs) And and as I thought, I tried to make an argument. So, for the Catholic epistles, first verse, James 1 1, Jesus Christos. And last verse is another brother of Jesus, Jude. Last verse, Jesus Christos. So it 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 works as an inclusive for the Catholic epistles, the semi-Catholic epistles. Let's see, or is it? Oh, it. Am I right? Or is it acts together with Catholic epistles? I'm a little bit unsure there. It's it's probably, um, um, but in any way, it's it's either the semi-Catholic epistles or acts together with the Catholic epistles. I think it's the Catholic epistles actually. no, it's I'm unsure, so I don't remember. <laughs> I write things down and check it, and my memory is a bit short. I'm getting old. Um, also, you may you may find it as we are talking. Um, also, in Matthew one one, you have the genealogy of Jesus Christ, don't you? Son of David. So you have Jesus Christos in Matthew one one, and the last verse of Acts. Is Jesus Christos. So they make work for the early canonical subunit for Gospels plus Acts. Sometimes they, in P45, it seems that Acts, Papyrus 45 Acts, may be included in that canonical subunit. Anyway, a claim could be made for Jesus Christos uh, framing or um, functioning as an inclusive ring construction to nomina sacra. The most important nomina sacra, you could say, the most frequently occurring nomina sacra, are, are used to present the New Testament as a collection of um, subcanonical units. And I think that's, it may be correct. I think it is a correct observation, and I think it was intended that way, but it needs to be discussed.
1: It's very interesting how we, you know, in the Western world, when we're compiling things, abbreviations mean almost not as important. But in our New Testament manuscript world, abbreviations are highlighting, are putting in it in all caps. Like when we think about Kyrios and we think about the nominous soccer things, like they, they go along with that, that that point back. I love how you're saying it points back to Old Covenant, New Test New Testament, Old Testament makes sense together in that way. Even when I'm thinking about the spirit, the idea of the spirit, and I know you got into this a little bit, there's, there's these passages that are... Uh, controversial is it talking about the human spirit it's talking about the holy spirit different things like that does the Namana sakra use of the spirit or the textual things that you found speak into that at all or helps differentiate which spirit is being talked about because they're both pneuma but is one abbreviated yeah. and and held to a higher higher regard with the nomina sakra?
2: you didn't mention the more serious problem Evil spirits, <laughs> so um, bad spirits, and they are sometimes also indicated as nomen sacrum. What happened, it seems, towards the late second century is that there was a standardization by you made by scribes, so they indicated all uh, indication all all appearances of pneuma of spirit as a nomen sacrum. So in um, in in some 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 late manuscripts in Codex Sinaitics, for instance, it, it you know, the it, pluma is indicated in 99% of all occurrences. So what you see by looking at Codex Sinaiticus is that you clearly have a triune pattern because uh, God, Lord, Jesus Christ, and Spirit are basically always demarcated. So it's like a, the, the Creed and the Scriptures. That's our first complete New Testament, Codex Sinaiticus, basically preserved in its entirety. Uh, Uh, creed and scripture are uh, brought together or married you cannot really, uh, that's my idea at least you have a triune, triadic, trinitarian pattern um, which is also binitarian in some instances binitarian and trinitarian at the same time like in the Nicene Confession Um, and you see it on every page in the New Testament New Testament scholars, uh, I don't think have seen that because I don't think there is Trinitarian patterns in the New Testament. Uh, but if you look up in the manuscript, it's on every page. Um, it is like when I defended my thesis, PhD thesis at Lund University. I got a letter afterwards from uh, Trigve Mettinger. Uh, he was the Old Testament professor at Lund University. And he specializes in the divine name. And you may know his, his um Work in that area. Um, he wrote me a letter and he said, I've been a professor for decades. I've never heard about this um, indication of the divine names in the Christian scriptures. He was shocked. Uh, and others whom I speak to, students at master's level, they've never heard about that either. And they have never heard about the rule of faith. The rule of faith was the answer in the second century. If uh, uh, the answer um, to the question "What is Christianity? What what is what is the distinctive uh, characteristic?" Um, and they would refer to the faith, the objective side of the faith, or the kerygma, or the rule of faith, or the rule of truth, or the um, the church's canon. So various terms are used for this, but the rule of faith is the most famous. Of course, uh, in a couple of Decades and and centuries, it it was more fixed, and it became the creed. So the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed were the most famous, but hundreds of regional creeds, or many at least, in addition to that. But because the creeds' reception historically and um, uh, the effective historical um, appearance of the creeds were so strong, we forgot about the early link that they called the rule of faith. And that went back all the way into the New Testament. And there was a separation between scripture and the basic foundation for theology, which is a, the Trinitarian creedal or kerygmatic formulation or the rule of faith awareness, which was actually the answer to what Christian faith is. Mm-hmm. And which it, um, Frances Young describes this very nicely. And she says, for Christians, orthodoxy was important in, in, in her book, The Making of the Creed's. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that made um, the Christians distinctive by emphasizing correct belief. Judaism didn't do that. Other faiths didn't do that. Other religions didn't do that, but Christianity did. Uh, so, um, anyway, uh, Trigve Mettinger, uh, he, uh, I was also shocked because I didn't know anything about Nomena Sakra until I read her Tata's article uh that he published i think in new testament studies in 1998 or something like that so that was my first uh uh, meeting with nomina Sacra, and and that was i thought oh this could be used because i wrote on the can formation process oh this could be used perhaps for 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 that purpose
1: dr bogodal thanks so much for just your time with this this year thoughtfulness about everything too um i love and and I have for a long time since we were in New Testament seminar, University of Aberdeen, when you would bring these things up, it was a it was a real unique like thought exercise for us as New Testament scholars because I think I could have gone through the entire PhD New, master's New Testament process without thinking about the things that you brought up, and so it's great to see the culmination the the kind of gathering of a lot of the scholarship that you pulled and even you have other things that you've written too, definitely. But in this book and even hearing your uh, more completed thoughts in a way that uh, that w- that you were thinking of these things, you know, 10 years ago, but now it's coming to fruition. And I, I'm, I'm very excited for this book and for how you're going to impact that. And especially in the area of biblical theology and, and helping us understand the importance of that rule of faith from the very get go.
2: Yeah, is I don't think it's so much me to be honest. Uh, I just dig a little bit and see what others have said. What they said, I'm, I'm just they talked about the rule of faith. I'm just saying, oh, they talked about the rule of faith, and I said, oh, they wrote down these in all Christian manuscripts, and everybody can check they did. So it's it's really not about. Well, don't emphasize me too much.
1: <laughs> the connections you're making, though, are powerful. And I think that's awesome. So I appreciate your I appreciate your thoughtful scholarship in that. I really do.
2: I think you challenged me more, Josh, with your emphasis on uh, spiritual formation and ethics. So thank you for that.
1: Oh, thanks, man. I I hope I had some impact there. <laughs> so it was good. Yeah, it was good.
2: Well, well that I hope. <laughs> uh, that was, uh, yeah, very, very good to see you. And, yeah. and to see see your work both both in terms of um, theory and practice. Thanks, man. Yeah, very good. Hope to see you soon. And thanks for having me.